What's up, Open Floor Globe? This is Ben Golliver with The Washington Post. I am joined on the other line by Michael the Pod Pina. As always, Michael, it's been a long run here during the NBA shutdown. We've turned every uh, rock upside down trying to come up with topics, and I finally found a pretty big one. All right, on Saturday... I will be flying to join the NBA's Orlando bubble to cover the duration of the NBA comeback, uh, the regular season, the playoffs, and everything else. I'm in it for the long haul, Michael. Um, I will be undergoing coronavirus testing on Sunday. Uh, I will be entering an in-room hotel quarantine for a week uh, immediately after my test. And hopefully, if if all goes well, not too long after that, I'll be able to cover NBA scrimmages and NBA games um, later this month from inside the bubble. I'll be honest, it's been a very long process to get here. Um, You know, it was an extensive application process, all these other different uh, hoops you've got to jump through. But after, you know, really searching the globe with the, the help of our Open Floor Globe members to come up with topics for the last few months, I think we're about to, you know, run right into a storm. There's going to be a lot going on, and I will be, uh, you know, reporting uh, from inside that bubble, like I mentioned. So I don't know. I, I guess I should turn to you. Do you. Does this sound like a good idea, Michael? Does this sound like a bad idea? Are you going to tell me I should maybe just cancel my flight? How are you uh, responding to our official announcement here today? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't even know if I should say that I'm excited for you. I, I am happy for you if you are happy to go down there. It's I would imagine it's slightly precarious and obviously unprecedented and who knows what the hell's going to happen down there. But you are one of the best NBA journalists covering the league and have been for a while. And so I think it's everyone who reads you and who's familiar with your work should be excited that you're one of the, the eyes and the ears going down there to perceive everything and communicate what exactly is going on. So from that perspective, I'm personally excited. Michael, that's the nicest thing you've ever said to me on this show. Um, I'm worried that you're <laughs> you're maybe test driving some eulogy lines there, so don't get ahead of yourself, all right? Uh, no, look, uh, dark humor aside... I'm excited to be going down there. Uh, it's kind of that feeling you would have if you're getting ready for a study abroad trip. I mean, it's an extended amount of time. That like mid-October NBA finals date sounds good on a calendar, but when you start planning out the idea you're going to be in a hotel room for 90 days, it does start to seem uh, you know, a little bit daunting, but you know how it goes, one day at a time, and, and we'll see how it unfolds. Obviously, there's nothing guaranteed uh, with this entire program. I think with uh, Adam Silver... He said that he's confident in the concept of the bubble, uh, but you know, as we've seen with soccer, uh, you know, having to send a team home because of ten positive tests. I mean, the setup is not perfect. There's no such thing as a perfect setup, and so I think that does lead to a little bit of apprehension. Um, you know, I'm feeling fairly confident about the decision. I, I will say this: I'm very grateful that the Washington Post has taken on the enormous expense of of covering this thing. Uh, you know, there's dollar figures out there if you guys want to Google it for sort of what's you know being charged to put this whole thing together from the media's perspective. But um, to get one of those ten spots and and uh, you know to understand that 
the post is putting the money up it is pretty cool uh, and uh, you know honestly michael it feels like more exclusive than uh college applications like you know it's one of those situations <laughs> where it's just like uh this might be like the toughest thing that i've ever had to apply for so i don't know we'll, we'll see how it shakes out but for now there's a lot of relief knowing kind of what the plan is uh, you know i've mm-hmm. got a flight down there i've got a plan to get to the uh, the bubble i know the check-in procedure and i think from you know uh, from after that everything goes the other point i do want to make real quick Nothing is going to change for the show, as far as we know. Uh, We're going to be able to do two episodes per week um, from the bubble. Hopefully, I'll have some good little nuggets. What's it like down there at Disney World? How are the players holding up? You know, what are they doing for fun? All that good stuff. We'll hopefully be able to convey on this show, and it shouldn't necessarily change our schedule either. So good news for the globe out there on that front. All right, Michael, maybe you should, should I open it up and let you do the, uh, the quizzing? Maybe what questions do you have for me as I'm getting ready to go down there? Yeah, uh, I mean, the first thing that I thought of is just kind of putting myself in your shoes and imagining myself telling friends and family that I'm going down there. So I'm just curious, like, what is the primary reaction that you receive from friends and family members when you tell them that you're entering this this bubble? Well, it ranges. I mean, some people love the sci-fi stuff, so they're just like, this is a dream. <laughs> they just think it's like the coolest thing ever. Um I think that there's definitely apprehension. I mean, so my direct family members, they know how careful I've been. And Adam Mm -hmm. Silver has been using this line, Michael, about, you know, it's safer inside the bubble than outside the bubble. And I think that's true for the players. When you're looking at them testing, you know, 5% of them testing positive during that initial screening these last two weeks, um, that tells you that they're not down, uh, locked down as tightly as I have been. Um, you know, I've been in a one man bubble for four months. You know, I'm, I'm not going out for groceries. I rarely, you know, I'm in a social situation, you know, even going to like a store for any particular reason, I'm getting everything delivered here. I'm walking, you know, around my neighborhood by myself, always socially distant other than a few trips to the bank, um, you know, a few trips to the laundromat. Like I really have had almost no social contact directly uh, with anyone for four straight months. And so that's obviously about to change in the bubble. I mean, Mm -hmm. there's going to have to be, you know, buses to the arena. There's going to have to be other people in the hotel room. Um, There's going to be more food contacts with, you know, how they're going to deliver the meals and everything else. So I would say for sure my risk factor is increasing. And I think um, I've also been the annoying one of my family, Michael. I've been hassling everybody. Hey, be vigilant. You know, don't go anywhere. No unnecessary travel. Stay at home. All that kind of stuff. So, um, you know, there has been some maybe accusations of hypocrisy, I would say. If, oh, you're going to fly across country into a hot spot to cover a basketball tournament. Sounds great. But, you know, the way I look at it, it's a professional obligation. This is kind of, you know, this is what the job calls for. I'm reasonably confident with their health setup. Um, and ultimately, it's where the action is. It's the story. Uh, you know, this is not a war zone, uh, you know, to any degree like that. Um, they've taken real, you know, safety measures and precautions. They, they've outlined that in an orientation for media members. And if I didn't feel comfortable with what they were saying, I, I wouldn't go. And, um, you know, bottom line is if Zion and LeBron are there, Michael, it's going to be hard to keep me away. You know, that's that's sort of how I look at it. You keep not mentioning Giannis when you, you make these proclamations. Which oh, it, it, am, I, am I snubbing it, my uh, Lord and yeah, Savior? That, that's your boy. So uh, I don't know what's going on there. Um, but I have uh, another question for you that's kind of, again, based on just something that I would think about if I were in your shoes. And like, what is more important or 
and or interesting to you on a professional level down there as a journalist, uh, you know, door number one covering the games and an actual NBA postseason. And, you know, the like the Lakers playing the Clippers in a series and getting to watch those games as close as you possibly can, however they allow you to, to cover it. Or as a journalist covering such a unique, uh, as I said before, unprecedented experience that will almost never happen again or hopefully will never happen again. Um, and from that perspective, you know, I think a lot of more important or valuable stories could be yielded from just the coronavirus aspect of the whole experiment. So just like, what are you more, I guess, I don't know if looking forward to is the right word, but what do you think is just more interesting to you on a professional level? Well, it's a great question. We've had this conversation internally at the Post, and there's no no doubt that their minds are thinking more towards category two. Um, especially yeah. at the top of just, you know, what's it like down there? How are people coping? What kind of activities are they getting into? Will the bubble hold? You know, does, you know, somebody test positive? What's the response like? You know, all those kinds of societal questions, you know, in Florida right now, some of the hospitals are starting to get filled up, right? Mm-hmm. So what are the ethics there, uh, you know, in terms of, you know, using a high quantity of tests to be testing everyone? daily when they're in the bubble and uh, what are the medical uh, procedures like if you know something goes wrong um, you know is it preferential I mean these kinds of questions come up that have nothing to do with basketball and that are certainly newsworthy so I would say from the post standpoint they're always looking to extend past the game that's just sort of you know our company mantra and I'll, I'll be honest like I, I think people who listen to this know I'm very much about the game right like I could just write about the game constantly right I think I would notice, Michael, if I was in an empty gym, you know, watching LeBron versus Giannis, I think I would figure it out that something was different, right? But ultimately, I really like the gameplay stuff too. So it will be a balance. For me, here's here's kind of how I look at it. There's going to be an acclimation process for the first couple of weeks. The, the, the players are getting used to each other after training camp. They're getting used to the building. They're getting used to no fans. We're getting used to the, the procedures of, you know, how can we interact with players in the media setting? And that's going to take a while to set in, and there's going to be a lot of culture shock. And, and for me personally, as I mentioned, having very limited social interaction here the last four months, there's going to be a lot of culture shock. I mean, even just getting on that plane on Saturday is going to be so different than anything I've done here the last four months. So it's going to shake me up. There's no doubt. My hope is we get a month in and, you know, we get rid of some of these teams that don't really belong there. You know, the losing teams, they, they can get kind of get home. My hope is we get to a point where we get to see high level basketball in like the most intimate personal setting for a, a basketball junkie that you could ever imagine. And the way it's been described to me, I mean, the media seats are supposedly 10 to 15 feet off the court. So you can't really ask for anything better than that. I mean, if you're telling me I get to sit courtside, even if it's an empty gym for Lakers, Clippers, Western Conference Finals two months from now. Michael, oh, that's, that's the pretty, dream. That's, that's the pretty dream. much my life dream, right? And it's the kind of thing that you will never, ever forget. So I, I don't want to go too hard away from the basketball stuff. I just think kind of order of operations, it will be the society questions first. And if we're all lucky and everybody stays healthy, and I'm, you know, I'm kind of praying for that every single night, we could have this crazy basketball payoff by the end. Do you think it'll be weird at all to like write about, I don't think you'll be writing gamers every day. Maybe you will write a few, but like, do you think that, or do you anticipate it being just like a strange feeling to be writing about basketball and other stuff that's 
you know, more important is going on simultaneously. Well, I think off the top, you're going to be writing, um, you know, our guys kneeling for the, for the national anthem, right? Those right. kinds of stories are going to yeah. be the focus. I'm actually very hopeful that we are going to get back to basketball stories before not too long. I mean, results matter. They're putting on this tournament for a reason. They want to crown a champion. Crowning a champion, to me, is very important. It's something I've stressed since March. They've done it every year since 1947. We've talked about the asterisk at nauseum. Mm-hmm. The games will matter. If guys are in shape, staying healthy, they should be very competitive. We have a lot of guys in the NBA who uh, you know, kill to win basketball games night after night after night. So um, for all those reasons, I'm hopeful that you know we'll settle in. We'll make the adjustment. Maybe it's September. You know, we're into the the final eight. Uh, you know, playoff teams, and the discussions now get back to a little bit of X and O's. Right? It, get, it gets back to who's throwing some crazy junk defense out. Who's got the lineup adjustment? I would love to get there, and I think that would actually be the sign that the bubble works almost more than anything else. If we're able to focus on those kinds of questions and not six players tested positive, they have to be in the quarantine, um, you know, the, the kinds of, you know, fear mongering that we've done over these last few months, and rightfully so, by the way. I mean, mm-hmm. those those things have hung over everything. I think that would be the ultimate mark of the healthy bubble. Now, how confident am I that we're going to get there? Uh, right now, uh, I would say not as confident as maybe uh, other points uh, You know, over this past summer. I'm swinging a little bit on the emotional pendulum. I'm feeling great that they're going to be able to start the games, for sure, because it's not that far away. Um, are they going to be able to make it oct- to October? I mean, that sounds like an awful long way in the distance, and there's so many things that could go wrong. There's so many different ways it could play out. So there I'm a little bit more hesitant, but um, you know, I would love to be able to get to a point where I'm not necessarily writing gamers, but you know, I'm writing right. the column that says Kawhi stole the throne from LeBron, or you know, <laughs> Le- LeBron punks Giannis in Game One, or Giannis is you know the next Jordan. He's about to get himself crowned the first title, just like '91. I mean, those kinds of stories. You know, I love those. Yeah, it would be great to get there. Or just like Tatum scores 55 for the 19th oh, straight no. game. Like that's just going to be a great angle for you. No, I want you to be look, all over it. I know people call Disney World kind of like a fantasy land. It's it's not going to be <laughs> that much of a fantasy, Michael. We're still going to be playing real basketball with the real players. It's not a video game, okay? It's not a simulation. Uh, okay, so I have one more, you know, semi-serious question for you before I want to lob some softballs in your direction. Um, you know, this week, a lot of NBA players have expressed trepidation for going down. They were not excited in conversations with the media. They revealed that, you know, it's not super great to leave your family. Even though you get to play basketball, you are entering just this really tight, restricted environment that none of them are super familiar with. So, you know, players are getting paid millions of dollars i don't need to tell you that to go play basketball in this situation and they feel not very excited about it you are as far as i know not earning over a million dollars from the washington post i mean you could be breaking news right now right here and let me know different but are you feeling any trepidation from that standpoint of just i'm entering this situation for x amount of days and I am quarantined away from my my loved ones and my friends. Michael, never ask a lady her weight, and never ask a colleague <laughs> his salary. What are you doing here? Um, no, it's it's a it's a great question. I, definitely, people have asked me the same thing. Um, 
the, the trepidation I have mostly comes from this idea that I've established really what I would consider to be strong and healthy routines over the last four months in terms of what I've been eating and how much I've been exercising. And so my concern mm-hmm. is just, I can control both of those aspects 100% at home and I have, and I'm very, very diligent about it. Um, and I'm also just proud of the progress I've made from a health standpoint, going there, not having control over my food necessarily. I guess it's going to be served three meals a day as part of the, uh, the media plan. I mean, there's going to be supplementary options, but you know, just not being in hundred percent control there. And then also, you know, I don't personally feel comfortable going to like the hotel fitness center to work out. So that means, you know, I'm walking around on the, on the walking trails outdoor, which sounds great. Um, but you know, it's not as freedom of movement as, you know, being able to walk around my neighborhood or anything else. So those are my main quality of, of life concerns. But, you know, I try to think of myself as a pretty simple guy. I definitely put basketball first in my daily life. So, you know, this notion of, oh, you're going to be stuck in a hotel room. I know uh, some people that I've talked to are kind of dreading this, you know, it's this idea of, uh, it's almost like you're going to be stuck on a cruise ship. I don't look at it like that. I wish I was getting Marriott points for the hotel. I'll say that. <laughs> I am a little bit nervous that the hotel rooms are small. That's kind of the early report. And obviously, you know, I, I live in a, a fairly small apartment, but, you know, the hotel room is going to be smaller than that. So that'll be an adjustment. But um, I'm just trying to be down for whatever, Michael, to be honest. I'm, I'm trying to have an optimistic attitude. And I, I think that, you know, a lot of people are framing this as kind of, it's like a once in a lifetime thing. You know, it's, the kind of story, like a study abroad that you'll kind of remember for decades down the road. And, you know, that that could be for good reasons and that could be for bad reasons, but I'm trying to, you know, enter with that positive mindset. It's an experience. You got to go with the flow. Uh, you brought up like the exercising aspect. I didn't even consider that. And that's something that I would probably struggle with as well. well like, Michael, not to brag, I've been walking at least eight miles per day during quarantine sometimes guess up what? to guess, 10 guess what you just you just bragged i know not to brag <laughs> but i'm bragging um so if i'm going to be getting eighteen thousand steps per day like my current average in a hotel room i will be pacing back and forth by my bed for three and a half hours um i don't know if that's a functional workout routine michael <laughs> i don't think it is ben um you mentioned also like the food, and I know you're a vegetarian. And uh, I, I is that? I mean, I saw the. I know we're going to talk a little bit about the meals in a minute, but I saw a picture of the steak and the shrimp that they were serving to players, and I it like made me reconsider my love of steak and shrimp. And so, like as a vegetarian, have you seen like what the meals are going to look like at least? for the first round or at least for the through the quarantine period? So my understanding is that the way they're doing it for the media, they're just bringing you like every meal, like the breakfast <laughs> meal has like four four courses essentially. And you just kind of pick and choose what you want. That's now the dangerous. problem, for, the problem for, yeah, I'm not so worried about the overeating because I'm more worried that like, I just don't eat 85% of the stuff that they're gonna bring. So I'm a little bit worried about the wastefulness aspect of it. Um, but I'm going to try to go with the flow. And of course, you know, any supplementary options that I, uh, you know, need to make happen, uh, I'm certainly going to try to do that. Um, I think if you go in expecting, you know, nice steak and shrimp, and I think a lot of NBA players did go in expecting that because yeah. that's what they're used to. That's their daily <laughs> life and bottom line. And you get this picture of the like barely cooked chicken and like the very pathetic pasta that these guys were sharing on social media the other night. There's going to be a real like life comes at you fast uh, mentality. 
I'm more picturing this like I'm going back to Central America for a backpacking trip, right? Or I'm back in my freshman year college dorm room when I didn't have any money to, you know, do anything. Like a Subway sandwich seemed like a luxury. That's mm-hmm. the mentality I'm going in with, very low expectations, and I'm hoping to be pleasantly surprised. Ramen, bagel bites. I'm that yeah, you're bringing me back to what I used to eat in my dorm room freshman year. Uh, just a really healthy diet all around. Well- Right, but it's not a 72-ounce, like, you know, porterhouse or whatever. <laughs> and if you if you start with bagel bites, you're probably going to be pleasantly surprised. If you start with the porterhouse, you're probably going to be like, get me the heck out of here. Can we please lose to the Lakers as soon as possible? That's very fair, very true. Uh, ben, my I, I have one more question for you that's kind of silly. But, like, where, if you wanted to, would you get a haircut? So they apparently have barbers available for the players, and we we might be able to at some point kind of contra- <laughs> contract with them. So here's what I did, Michael. I had grown my hair out, sort yes. of looking like a prison release uh, gentleman, I would say. I mean, I, mm-hmm. it, it was pretty shaky. I had not had a haircut since March. I was able to buzz it on Tuesday. So I'm going in real clean, real real nice and tight. Um, now if I get a situation where I just can't get a barber until October, I'll basically be back to where I was, you know, earlier this week. And in that case, I'm pretty much comfortable with that. I, I will be bringing a hat just in case, you know, um, uh, it's a, a, a pretty common like quarantine move for guys these days. Um, but, uh, I'm hoping that I'll be able to get it buzzed. Hey, maybe once every month or once every two months. And if so, that's, that's manageable. I mean, it's not my preferred style of grooming, but, uh, it will make do. Right. The difference is you'll be around other people in semi-public and potentially even on television if you're going to be sitting that close to the court, which is uh, which is going to be very interesting. So no, um, it's a good point. I was actually wondering, do I need to be making some uh, statements? Like, should I be wearing a hat that says <laughs> wear a mask? Right. Or should I have a shirt that says open floor globe or, you know, what, what, you know, maybe a high Michael Pina on my my uh, my polo shirt logo. I don't know. We'll we'll come up with some uh, you know viral marketing strategies here as we go forward. We'll have plenty of time next week when I'm stuck in a hotel room for seven days straight. Michael, I wanted to ask you this question because I've told you how I'm mentally preparing. You know, it's like a study abroad or you know a trip back to the freshman dorms. What piece of advice would you give me? as I start to prepare to go down there? Because I, I know you had, like, had your honeymoon like super abroad, I believe, and you've traveled quite a bit over the years. Do you have anything that I should be doing, whether it's like packing, whether it's mentally preparing like I was describing, whether it is adjusting to a new culture? Like, What's the thing that you think I need to know for this trip? Well, besides going in with an extremely open mind, which I, it seems to me that you have, which is really good, like for me personally, whenever I pack to take a trip abroad for an extended period of time, almost the number one concern or whatever you want to call it for me is just making sure that I pack the the right books. Like I'm a big reader and I go through books pretty quickly. So if I'm gone for like over seven, eight days, I need at least three books with me. And if I pick a book and take it with me and it turns out that it's just like it's not working out for me i will be so bun- bummed and i know it's basically impossible to know if you're going to enjoy a book before you start it but if you do select the wrong one 
And if you bring books at all, uh, then that would be just really devastating. So my, my advice would be, if you do, in fact, bring a Kindle or whatever you bring, if you bring physical books like I do, which I prefer, make sure you don't screw up and take one that you're going to really regret. It's a great point. I've got a few uh, hard copy books just like, you know, sports writers have sent me, hey, it's like an early copy of my book or, or some publishing house has sent. So I've got a few of those on deck. I primarily read now on my iPad. So I will be bringing that. So I won't have to worry about like excess weight. Fancy. Um, yeah, well, you know, what can I <laughs> what can I do? It's the it's 20, 21st century, Michael. So that will be good. Um, I will take anyone's recommendations, whether it's television shows, books, or anything else. I'm not expecting to have like some crazy amount of free time uh, because I think it's going to be a fairly busy scene down there, especially at the start when there's 22 teams. Uh, but I, I encourage everybody to email me your recommendations, uh, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. All right, Michael, we've got an amazing assortment of questions. I think we're going to try to get through them rapid fire um, if we possibly can. I really want to highlight, though, people are coming in from all over the globe right now. We've got all these different continents emailing in, Michael. I think it's a sign that people have stuck with us through what was a, a very long stretch without basketball. And I certainly want to appreciate and tell everybody thank you for that. But I'm also sensing a, a rejuvenation factor, an excitement factor that basketball is getting uh, closer. And I love to see that. And I really, really hope it pays off. So here we go. We got a bunch of questions. I'm going to start with Coach D. He writes, I'm a big golf and PGA fan, and I've been watching and following the tour each week. They've done a great job adjusting their health and safety plan uh, as they go. One of these adjustments has been about false positive COVID tests. One of the golfers tested positive for COVID and was required to quarantine for 10 days. While in quarantine, he tested negative three times in a row, so he most likely had a false positive test. After the event, the PGA adjusted their plan. If a player tests positive but has two negative tests within 24 hours, they can return to the competition. How will the NBA handle false positive tests? What adjustments might the NBA make to their protocols while teams are in Orlando? So it's a great uh, question from Coach D. There are both false positives and false negatives that can kind of trip up the uh, testing procedures. Mm -hmm. um, I would just say that they're going to be testing the players every single day. And they are doing kind of a stopgap here where you basically have to test positive twice to be viewed as a positive. So if you do test positive, they immediately retest you to confirm that result. So that should hopefully prevent the 10-day delay that the, the golfer faced that he's describing. Uh, Michael, have you given any thought to how the protocols could be shaped here as they go forward in Orlando um, thankfully you, you are not officially a doctor and thankfully you're not in charge of the entire health and safety <laughs> program for Miami, but have you given any you know, sort of like thought to the flexibility aspect? Uh, yeah. I mean, I would imagine it's going to be extremely fluid. Uh, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if the current testing policy was tossed out the window as we went along and, uh, players of different profile and popularity start to test positive. I know I'm being, uh, this is my tinfoil hat on right now, but if LeBron were to test positive, they'd probably spend 15 or 20 tests on him until he got a negative one. Um, <laughs> so you're going gonna to confirm his positive <laughs> test until you get a false negative. Is that your strategy? That's probably what the NBA will do. Yeah, that's what I would imagine. Um, but no, seriously, like I, I think that what the PGA did here with Cameron it just makes a lot of sense. Uh, you want to, for sure, exercise the most caution as you possibly can. 
but you also don't want to, I mean, the whole point of putting this event on is so that the players play basketball. So unnecessarily quarantining someone uh, would just be no good for anybody. So I think that there's obviously a, a, a concern of using, you know, using too many tests on players as they're playing basketball in an area where, you know, COVID is, is rampant and it's a hot spot. But at the same time, since you are putting on this exhibition, I think that making sure that you know to the best of your ability who actually has the disease and who doesn't is of the utmost importance. For sure. And we should underline this. The most important part of this entire testing procedure is about to take place. The players get to Orlando. They are going to be tested. They're going to be put through a 36 to 48 hour hotel quarantine and then they're going to be released from that quarantine when they test negative. They need to have everybody negative to start this thing. They have to have that baseline. It's like super, super crucial. If anybody comes out of that hotel quarantine as a positive, they're able to infect almost anybody they come into contact with, whether it's their teammates, coaches, and everything else. So what we saw happen with Major League Soccer is that at least one person came out of that quarantine positive, uh, and they basically slipped through the cracks. Next thing you know, there's 10 positive tests among that team, and they, FC Dallas winds up being sent home from the MLS bubble, which is taking place, you know, very nearby, uh, you know, at these, this Disney World compound, um, and they just have to kind of kick them out of the tournament. So it's a situation where the NBA has built in some lead time here before the playoffs, so if there was a similar situation, they wouldn't necessarily have to kick out a team. They would probably just have to quarantine them for two weeks before bringing them back for regular season games or playoff games. Uh, but that's just it, it, it underscores and reinforces how important it is that everybody starts this bubble from the same clean baseline uh, of testing negative. And hopefully we will have information from the NBA once that all takes place. Once everybody's cleared quarantine, I imagine they will release the, the testing results to say, hey, uh, you know, 350 tests, zero positives, and we go forward. That's the best case scenario. That's what we're hoping for. Yeah, and to build on that real quick, I mean, the MLS has started their, I believe it's called the MLS's Back uh, Tournament, and the first game was this week. But since all the players arrived in Florida, you mentioned Dallas, which basically had to not, they can't participate because of the 10 positive tests that they've that they uh, revealed since they landed there. But the the Nashville Soccer Club uh, had five positive tests after they arrived in Florida as well. So it's like a which really threatens their ability to compete going forward. So I guess like one of the worst case scenarios is a team goes down there and, you know, I'm thinking about a team like the Brooklyn Nets, which is already just bare bones with so many players who tested positive because they live in New York. And they go down there and all of a sudden they have five positive tests already off the jump. Like I, that's, that would just be really not great. And I know that games aren't, games of importance aren't happening right away as soon as the players land and arrive or anything like that. But it would still just put, it it would still just like not be how you want to start this whole thing. For sure. It's getting off on the wrong foot and also probably scaring a lot of people who are participating, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The NBA is hopeful that their pre-arrival procedures were maybe a little bit stricter than MLS. You know, it was possible that one of those players, either on Nashville or Dallas, got it sort of during the transit time period or uh, contracted it right before traveling with the team. 
Um, they haven't, I, as to my knowledge, they haven't determined exactly where those positive tests came from. The NBA was a little bit stricter without handled those things, um, you know, in transit and right beforehand. So hopefully that will get the NBA to the clean baseline that the MLS did not have. But again, achieving perfect results here is super hard and the entire bubble is only as good as its weakest link. So it's going to be put to the test here immediately. I would encourage all of our listeners, that's what you're looking for here over the next seven days. What are the positive tests looking like in the bubble? That will say a lot about the efficacy of the bubble plan uh, going forward. All right, we got another question. It's coming in from Jason in Singapore, Michael. He says, I've been thinking a lot about the NBA plan and the specter of Disney employees coming and going, even if they are supposed to be on the distant circle from the players and staffs. I've heard many say it would be too much of a hardship to keep the Disney employees away from their families and such, plus there's logistics involved in adding all those folks. I get that part, but in this economic environment, I think there's an easy solution to the hardship. Many have lost their jobs and are therefore desperate for income. My solution is for Disney to send out a call to their employees saying if they agree to staff the bubble and be locked down, they will be paid much more than their normal rate for the duration of their time there. I'm sure they'd be overwhelmed with folks who would want to do it. Think about it. The cost of doing this would be pocket change compared to what they are paying the NBA players. Having done quite a bit of research on inequality and pay differences, this would send a nice signal about reducing inequalities and making things better for the working person. People who really need the money, especially these days, like housekeepers, kitchen staff, maintenance workers, gardeners, and the like. It would it would also significantly reduce risk of spreading the virus among the players. What are your thoughts? So, Michael, um, I mean, I think we can agree it's a great sentiment. What do you think? Would this be able to play out in reality? I agree that the sentiment is is nice where Jason's head is at. But at like, the end of the day, in my opinion, you're still separating people from their families and restricting their right to come and go. And you are paying them for that service. But sometimes there's just things that are priceless and like wanting to sleep in your own bed is one of those things for me personally. And, you know, if someone's parent or sister or, or, or brother or child were to get sick because the surrounding areas where these people live are presumably not doing too well in terms of how they're dealing with COVID, uh, and they want to leave and be with their uh, a family member who's not doing too well uh, or take care of them in some other way, or maybe if it's not, not even COVID-related, uh, you're basically asking them to choose between a paycheck and their family. And I, I, I just think it's a really dicey proposition, and I'm sure some people would be fine with it. I, I personally think it gets into some icky territory. It's very tricky because I think the people who are in those situations are often the ones who are most important for their family units, right? I right. think it's a it's a real privilege in a lot of situations to be able to to have this idea of I can go away for three months and you know live away from my home and you know just continue working like it's no big deal. Um, you know, for myself personally, I don't take that for granted. I, I mean, I I feel very very fortunate to be in that situation. Um, my decision making process would be a lot different if I had uh, you know a bunch of kids that were at home needing to be taken care of. So I think that there will potentially be a situation where the NBA has to tighten things up. They've talked about this, where there could need to be some level of Disney employees coming on the campus to service players' rooms and so forth. Um, so he's on the right track and it's possible. I just don't think we're going to see it 
with like thousands of employees, right? I don't think they're going to bring like the entire staff into this bubble. Uh, I think the idea is, you know, do that if a significant outbreak is threatened, if you feel like you're able to contact Trace back and it was one particular housekeeper who brought this thing in, so you know that that's a weak point of the system. Um, you know, those kinds of things could lead them to adjust their protocols. But I think uh, for now, they're going to be leaving a lot of that to Disney because Disney has to staff you know, four hotels, for three for the players, one for the media and the NBA itself. And in addition to that, they have to staff, you know, three basketball arenas and additional practice venues, all of those which are being uh, cleaned regularly. I think we need to keep in mind here, the scope of this project from a financial standpoint is massive. I mean, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars to kind of put this whole thing on. So I know, you know, this idea of, oh, paying the workers a little bit more to come into the bubble and, and take care of things. Um, that's true, relatively speaking, but it's also you're operating with this gigantic budget um, and you have no guarantee of how many people are going to watch on television. So, um, you know, it remains to be seen how much money they're going to be able to generate from this thing. So I, I do think that they're, you know, being prudent uh, in various places um, from a budgeting standpoint because they have to be. All right. We have another question here coming in from switzerland michael and it's actually specifically <laughs> for you i yes. don't know if this is your alter ego who's also named michael in switzerland he writes i recently listened to the vince carter retrospective where you guys said you wanted him to be a little bit more selfish and chase a ring instead of being a locker room leader why is ring chasing such a thing among veteran nba players isn't it the impressive legacy to have been a locker room leader and to have future all-stars and MVPs say that they learned from you rather than just having a championship ring that you barely contributed to? So, Michael, this is an interesting question. I think also for our global audience, sometimes they're wondering, like, what's up with the NBA player mentality or where does something like that come from? Um, so how would you respond to Michael here? I mean, I, I personally don't really care what Carter does. I think, like... You know, the context of our conversation was mostly about the Hall of Fame and what the best way would be for him to build a case and fortify the argument to put him in there. And so in that context, like, it's just easier to count a championship ring. I mean, players, first of all, want to win, like, championships. That would be the name of the game. The Why else are you playing a sport if not to win at the highest level? So if you have not even played in a conference finals or contributed in one in a productive way or, you know, in how many, ever many years, 20 plus years, you were only in one and you want to actually get beyond that level and go to the finals and win it all, that would be understandable, I think. And maybe even more personally rewarding to you than, you know, uh, sitting by Kevin Herter's locker after every game when you lose by 35 points and being like, hey, on this possession, you didn't do X, Y and Z. And that's why we, we, we got dominated tonight. Um, so, I mean, I'm not really knocking the ladder. I don't mean to be if it sounds like I am. I just don't think it's applicable to a conversation about a player's uh, Hall of Fame worthiness. Yeah, I think two things going on. First of all, I think Michael in Switzerland, we just maybe wanted more from Vince Carter's career in general. He just had a pretty short playoff track record. And right. so it's not necessarily, oh, he has to win a ring. It's, you know, let's just see him on that stage because we really didn't get to see a lot of it, um, especially as, you know, once he kind of progressed out of his, um, his early prime. I think the second thing going on here, though, I don't want to undersell how cool winning a title is or looks or seems like. And I think if you're a player who's around for 22 years or even, you know, 15 years, 
there is a tug on a lot of these veterans because it's like the one thing they haven't accomplished. You know, if you're able to hang around that long, you've made enough money to provide for yourself and your family forever, basically indefinitely. You've you've seen it all. You've played in every building. You've gotten cheered. You've gotten standing ovations. You've gotten booed. You've been, you know, uh, probably lambasted in the press. You've been hailed as a, a great guy. I mean, you've you've done everything. The only feeling that you really haven't experienced, you've been drafted, which a lot of guys point to as being one of the greatest moments of their life, mm-hmm. going on stage, shaking hands. The, the only milepost that you haven't hit is that uh, is that title. And as somebody who has, you know, evaded security on occasion to sneak down onto the court during title celebrations, Michael, I got to say, I would be ring chasing. It seems pretty awesome to get to hug guys who you spent all year long with, um, you know, celebrate, just be, you know, put on the championship hat, hold up the trophy, jump up and down on stage. It's a really, really cool scene. And ultimately, Michael from Switzerland, it's something that I look forward to every year is just that moment because it's a huge release it almost doesn't matter who wins as long as it's not the celtics um it's just a great time and i'll even say like the summer league championship celebrations are kind of fun too you know okay, I mean, you're, go- you're, you're going too far right now man. all right all right I'm, I'm laying it on pretty thick but yeah. it's a it's a magical moment where everybody drops their guard and the, no clearer example than LeBron crying in 2016. I mean, this guy is the most scrutinized, watched player of our generation. And in that moment, he can't control his emotions. The, the joy is too much. It overwhelms him. That's what sports are all about. That's why we watch. And so if you're a player in Vince Carter's position and you've, you've put in great amount of time uh, you could understand why a lot of guys in that spot say, you know what, I want to go field. I want to be like David West with the Warriors. What's it feel like to get to jump up and down and bathe in champagne and yep. everything else? Don't undersell it, Michael. I'm telling you, it is awesome. All right. Uh, we are going to take one more question here um, from Mark in Montreal. He's emailing us a lot, Michael. I really appreciate Mark. He has a, a different, more serious question. He says, guys, what do you think about the word, quote unquote, stud? I've been following basketball here more closely thanks to my kids, and I noticed that commentators throw this word around quite a bit. Can you explain it? It has always made me feel a little bit uncomfortable to hear uh, professional athletes, and particularly black men, being compared to a powerful horse. Is there another meaning of this word that I am missing? Uh, he says, I thought it would be safe to ask you guys because I love you both and because I know you both love language. Um, on the same topic, are there other words or terms that you hear in regular use in the NBA that make you cringe a bit? So I think what he's referring to is, Michael, we might offhandedly say, oh, man, Zion Williamson, man, that guy is a stud. LeBron is just a physical stud. Or, you know, other times you'll hear, oh, he's a beast. That guy's a beast, right? Um, I think he's wondering, especially in light of, you know, the social justice uh, movements here over the last few months, Right. Is it time to retire some of those terms? Is it time to be more careful with our usage, more precise with uh, you know how we're describing players? What do you think? You know, I never really even thought about the word "stud" in a derogatory like rep like reference or frame framing. I I've always, I, to be honest with you, Ben and Mark. Which I mean, first of all, this is a really good question. I never even like knew that a stud. I, like personally, I've never associated a stud with a horse before uh, or a stallion. And, and like, I didn't really know that before I read this email and then looked it up and did a little bit of research. So thank you for yeah. that. 
No, I would say that's very common. There's often phrases like this that enter our lexicon that we're not a- aware of the original um, reference. And, you know, some people might stop twice and say, oh, wow, I didn't even realize I was potentially offending someone. When you do think about the, the connotation with the horse, though, it is a dehumanizing term. Um, you know, there's also this other like pop cultural reference to a stud where it's just like, hey, he's a hot guy, like A.C. Slater on uh, Saved by the Bell, right? Isn't that like the quintessential, oh, he's a stud? <laughs> what a reference, yeah. You know what I mean, though? Like, isn't <laughs> yeah. he the stud? And, sure. uh, and maybe th- there is another version of this term that is, you know, less dehumanizing or it's like maybe been co-opted in a way that it's not, uh, you know, particularly directly offensive. But I think Mark's on to something here. I also think that when you are talking about a word and trying to figure out if it is offensive, I think sometimes the party that you are assuming is offended uh, has some say in the matter. And there's, there's a lot of words that we could get into that we won't. But... Like, I've just never even heard anyone saying, hey, that's, I, I don't think that that is a word that I'm comfortable someone using to describe me on a basketball court. So, um, from that, if that, if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong about it and I will never use it again. But I haven't really ever come across any controversial reference with this one. And honestly, it's like not every, like, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, whenever a player, if even if we were talking about in the reference of uh, complimenting someone and com- in comparing them to a powerful horse, like there are animals out there that players often compare themselves to, like uh, a lion, for example. LeBron is constantly uh, citing himself and putting himself in the same uh, sentence as a lion, as the king of the jungle, and stuff like that. So it's like I, I sometimes it's just we go a little too far and I'm, I am particularly sensitive personally when it comes to stuff like this, but like, I just have never even, this has never crossed my path to be honest with you. Yeah. I I am kind of reminded of like when Phil Jackson made the posse comment about LeBron and, you know, he's feeling like there's no, uh, you know, he's kind of laying out what you just said where I didn't think there was, you know, I, I never gave much thought to it. And LeBron and his, uh, you know, his people obviously took it a different way and it, it wound up being a conversation or, you know, Draymond making that uh, reference about owners and how there should mm-hmm. no, be, be no discussion of owners and can't we just call them governors? And there was some pushback at that originally. Um, you know, I, I think there's going to be some people out there who are like, well, they're going to play the slippery slope game. It's like, guys, can we use any words anymore? You know, this is all overbearing. Um, you know, with the stud one, it also gets a little bit uncomfortable because it often gets used about high school prospects, right? And that, again, does almost bring in this horse terminology that he's talking about where it's, you know, right. you're, you're uh, you know, it feels almost like a meat market, right? And, and there's been some situations I've been around, you know, people in the draft circles that can get really uncomfortable in terms of how they're talking about players. And that's their job, you know, ultimately is measuring, weighing, uh, judging, NBA players or, or prospective NBA players, and it can get a little bit too rich for my blood, uh, if that makes sense. So I think our point here, Mark, is I'm not sure we're banning stud here, but it does, uh, it made me think twice your question. And I, I do think that uh, it doesn't add a ton, you know, that particular term. So if we can find better ways to describe players, maybe we should. Michael, was there any other things uh, that we say that kind of makes you uncomfortable? I don't know if this is like basketball specific, but 
years and years ago, Henry Abbott on True Hoop had an awesome breakdown of all the gun references that wind up populating sports writing and yeah. NBA conversations. Uh-huh. And uh, that's one where, like, even on the last episode, Michael, I said, gun to your head, what would you do? And it's like, no, that, I mean, maybe we shouldn't be putting a gun to Michael's head, even metaphorically right now. Like, <laughs> Probably not. Yeah. Like, maybe that's a really bad idea. And those kind of things get peppered in all the time. Um, and it, it's really hard to break those kinds of habits. So, first of all, I don't, I'm not pointing a weapon at you right now. Um, and second of all, I'm going to try to do better on this stuff. I mean, Mark, Mark kind of opened my eyes. What do you think? 100% agree with you. I mean, I don't want to, I say this with no, not to be like critical or anything, but I did notice just scrolling through Instagram the other day, like JJ Reddick was wearing a shirt that said, shoot or shoot. And it's like the first thing, honestly, that pops in my mind, I understand the context here. He is one of the best three point shooters in NBA history. And we happen to use the word shoot when we're talking about basketball. And we happen to use the word shoot when we're talking about someone pointing a gun at someone else and pulling the trigger. But I just thought that that was a little, maybe not the right place to be or time to be wearing a shirt like that, given everything that's going on in the country right now. Yeah, I mean, if you're going to wear a shirt that says shooters shoot on the front and on the back, it's how many more? It's like, well, you know, are we are we sending conflicting messages here? I mean, mm-hmm. I think it's a, you know, it's a it's a fair question. And I, I mean, I don't want to divert too much from this important discussion, but I should say that, you know, breaking news while we're recording this episode, uh, a reference to a conversation we were having earlier about the MLS's back tournament, the Nashville Soccer Club, which I referenced as having five positive tests after they landed in Florida has officially withdrawn from the tournament. So that is, I mean, Ben, you talked about how you think that the NBA has been a little bit more strict in the pre-entrance requirements for the players. It's still not like the greatest news, I would say, if you're Adam Silver. No, it's another bad omen. I mean, that's two teams down. And it, again, it it also sets a benchmark for the NBA. They've been dodging and weaving on what does it take to pull the plug. Mm-hmm. Uh, the phrase that Adam Silver has used now repeatedly is, quote unquote, significant spread, which doesn't have a number on it, but we can all kind of you know ballpark what we think that would look like. Um, in this case, you know, if you're eliminating teams from a soccer tournament, that's a little bit different than what they would normally do. Um, you know, maybe the integrity of the game part doesn't get called into question as directly. If you were the NBA in the same situation, and rather than FC Dallas, let's say it's the Dallas Mavericks, and you find yourself in a position where you have to send them home, and it's like, okay, like next team up, you know, Phoenix Suns, congratulations, you're now in the playoffs. Um, you would get a lot more pushback from fans, and rightfully so, on the integrity of the game part. Yeah, but this is also, this is just goes back to the whole asterisk thing, which we don't need to dive into too deep. But like, this is why, you know, uh, it's like the asterisk is just unavoidable. And I'm not like saying, no one knows the future. We don't know if something like this will be as severe, if a whole team will get, uh, will test positive, or there'll be too many to, for them to even compete, and they'll be forced to leave the bubble altogether or something like that. But just looking at what's happening with the MS, MLS and them being, for lack of a better phrase, a guinea pig in this scenario, because, I mean, this tournament is taking place in the exact same place. It's at, it's at the Walt Disney Complex. Um, it's just not great, and it does foretell not great things happening on the horizon. For sure. Um, and we should point out, 
it's at the same place, but there are like bubbles within bubbles, right? Um, so <laughs> the, the NBA's compound, as they described it to me this morning, is basically five bubbles, the three hotels, uh, the gym facility, and then mm-hmm. a practice facility. So all of those are kind of secured. And then within those bubbles, you're not allowed to cross-pollinate. So I there's no way for me to walk over to a player's hotel. Um, if that would happen, I don't know... Uh, if that's going to, you know, I'm not sure that's going to be an immediate arrest, but it's not going to be good for me if I tried to do that. Let's just put it that way. Um, And so the soccer players are completely separated from the NBA players. If the NBA has problems, it will be its own problems with the bubble as opposed to soccer's bubble spillage, if that makes sense. All right. Uh, We got a bunch of follow-up questions on our really fun uh, podcast from earlier this week, Michael. Remember, we ran down the worst decisions of the past decade. I thought we did a pretty good job. I mean, we had a lot of doozies, a lot of, you know, arguably low blows on my behalf, just kind of, you know, taking shots at people. Uh, But... Uh, see, there you go. Taking shots once again. It's it's inevitable, unavoidable. Mm-hmm. Um, but we had a number of readers who wanted to get in on the fun. They wanted to chime in with their own worst decisions. So we're going to go through a couple of these quickly. Um, Ryan from Toronto says, the worst decision since the decision has to be the Clippers trade for Paul George. This was a horrible decision even before the pandemic. But since the pandemic, it's become even worse because both the conclusion of this season and next season are in jeopardy. And both Paul George and Kawhi Leonard can become free agents after next season. The Clippers traded future star Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And I'm sure there's no Canadian bias in the framing there, uh, Ryan. And, and (laughs) And every draft pick from now until 2040, slight exaggeration, Ryan, for not even two full seasons of Paul George and Kawhi Leonard. And even if the Clippers win this year, there's going to be a huge asterisk carved into the Larry O'Brien trophy. Also, Kawhi Leonard was signing with the Clippers even without Paul George, so they should have just called his bluff. And then he goes on to say, P.S., the best Masai Ujiri trade besides the Kawhi Leonard trade, wasn't the Andrea Bargnani trade to the Knicks. In fact, it was the 2015 deal where he sent Grievous Vasquez to the Milwaukee Bucks for their second round pick who became Norman Powell and a 2017 first round pick who became OG Anunoby. I mean, that wasn't a monster trade by Masai. There's no doubt from Ryan. Mm -hmm. But start with the uh, Paul George part, Michael. Um, What do you think on that? So, I mean, it's funny to me that this question comes in from Ryan, who is in Toronto, and I'm sure there is absolutely no salt being expressed from the perspective of Kawhi leaving Toronto. Oh, you to think he might Clippers. be a l- might be a little heartbroken up there in the six? A little bit potentially. Um, I, I mean, just look at, stepping away from that angle, you can't criticize like you just can't criticize this trade before like the Clippers as constructed even play one playoff game. I don't think that that's fair at all. I think uh, when you look at Paul George well, and Kawhi. Oh, go ahead. Stop there, though. Can you, let me ask you: Can you see where Ryan's going with this? Though? Oh yeah, no, is yeah, this, for sure. Does this have the potential to be like Brooklyn Nets, Paul jo- or Paul uh, Paul Pierce level bad? Yeah, no. It's it's okay to argue that the Clippers might have mortgaged too much of their future, but also at the same time, you have to acknowledge that given where they were at the time 
uh, and the fact that they might, I mean, he says that Kawhi is 100% going to the Clippers regardless. I do not think that you can say that with 100% confidence. So the fact that you might not have gotten Kawhi Leonard without having someone of Paul George's caliber going alongside with him. I mean, the Clippers were over a barrel there. Kawhi could have signed with the Lakers for the one-and-one. He could have signed with Toronto again with a one-and-one or something like that. That's not completely out of the question. So I understand why it could blow up in their face, particularly with COVID kind of blowing up this season, potentially. So then both guys could be unrestricted free agents really soon, and you're not really maximizing your value there. I get that for sure. And I said, I I shared that criticism when I saw the trade. But at the same time, you're trying to win a title. I admire them for going for a title. They have two of the 10 best players in the league. They have, in my opinion, the best player in the league. Uh, In my opinion there, they should be treated as the favorite, uh, if not, of course, the Houston Rockets. Um, And when you look at how they've played this season, when Paul George and Kawhi are on the floor together, the Clippers are a complete juggernaut. So it's not like they've been disappointing in any shape or form. And uh, like we're talking about the worst decisions uh, of the last 10 years. This does not qualify as one of the worst decisions, a deal that makes you a probable favorite to win the NBA championship. Yeah, I would categorize this one as one of the riskiest, you know, sure. or one of the, yeah, the highest, one of the highest leverage. But I wouldn't call it one of the worst, at least not yet. I I think that Ryan is calling his shot, though, Michael. I think he's pointing out there to the, the outfield stands like Babe Ruth, and he's just waiting and waiting and <laughs> hating and waiting and hating and waiting, and it might come to fruition. On this same topic, though, we got an email from Patrick in Poland, and I'm telling you, Michael, we have global representation on today's episode. He says. I'm a little bit disappointed that the Sergi Baca trade with the Orlando Magic was only mentioned as a, a postscript. It's worth noting that Orlando gave away not only Oladipo, but also the DeMontis Sabonis pick. So you got two future All-Stars in that deal. And that's for a guy that they gave away a few months later to Toronto. You could even say that in that deal, Orlando traded away a package that ultimately became Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, five first-round picks, three of which are unprotected, (laughs) and two unprotected pick swaps. And so the way Patrick is getting there is by doing the order of operations from Oklahoma City, trading Ibaka, you know, for the pieces that they wind up flipping for Paul George, and then, you know, passing that forward uh, for the pieces that they got back for Paul George um, from the Clippers. If you do all that asset management, Sam Presti looks like a monster. There's no doubt. But Orlando does look a lot worse. I mean, do you think that they would have uh, been willing to trade Oladipo and Sabonis for Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, five first-round picks and two unprotected pick swaps? I think that they would probably make that move, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, I I disagree with the whole logic here. Uh, Not that this was a terrible decision by Orlando, because it was. Um, It was actually, at the time, I remember kind of kind of liking it just because I thought that Serge Ibaka was really complimentary to what they were doing. And at the time also, like Victor Oladipo, first of all, like saying two all-stars, sure, they became all-stars. So bonus is a completely non, like he's a pick. We don't know what he is, who, what he's going to be. He could have been a uh, Jakob Pertl. We don't know. Um, and then Oladipo was kind of struggling through his career there and would ultimately have a pretty down year next to Westbrook in Oklahoma City. So, I mean, like, I just kind of disagree with the logic of saying that, you know, this package could have been 
Shea Gilgis Alexander, Danilo Gallinari, five first round picks, uh, because the Magic definitely could not have traded Victor Oladipo and Doma Simonis for right. Paul George. So that's well, just like not going to happen. A lot of things happen along the way. I mean, Oladipo got hurt, Paul George, uh, you know, missed some time. I mean, there was a lot of um, activity in between those moves. That's why I think it highlights Sam Presti's ability to kind of reinvent his organization and keep things uh, rolling. Uh, mm-hmm. in a little better light as opposed to making Orlando's uh, front office just look absolutely atrocious. But, you know, they did wind up losing both sides of that Ibaka trade because they didn't get much back for him when they did trade him. Um, and I think that that wound up really setting that organization back a couple years. Um, you know, it, it was a trade that, you know, didn't, to me, it didn't make a lot of sense at the time and it kind of trended towards the worst case scenario. All right, we've got a couple more mistakes that we want to get through here, Michael. Um, what about, well, first of all, Patrick from Poland also mentioned that we should point out that the Suns drafting of Dragon Bender and Marquise Chris, which I was so hard on, should be viewed in a little bit more of a favorable light because he said a lot of the draft experts at the time had those guys like, you know, top five, top seven on the boards. Um, you know, when I look at that argument, Patrick, I hear you if you're only taking one of those two, but if you're right. taking them both, they conflict they, and they're both kind of home run picks and you have so many other needs and you're a place that just doesn't have an established culture, you have to take all that into account. I mean, you knew that both those guys were going to be developmental players, um, you know, because, you know, Bender is having the transition from overseas and Chris was like the Ross player, the highest upside type guy uh, in that lottery class. So he, you was a late, he was a late riser too, if I recall. Like, right. Yeah. Well, he had some major red flags. I mean, he was fouling every 10 seconds on the court. Sure. Like, you know, and, and so I think that, you know, it's incumbent upon executives to bring in players who will fit within their context. Just because a guy is number four on, you know, the Chad Ford big board or, you know, Draft Express big board at the time, that doesn't mean he's the fourth best player in the class to fit what you're trying to do. You have to know your strengths and weaknesses as an organization and bring guys who are going to be able to kind of like fit there. And we heard this exact commentary, by the way, from Josh Jackson, who obviously busted out in Phoenix too. I mean, he said, you know, like bottom line, that organization didn't really know what it was doing. I mean, he's made comments along those lines. Um, You know, that is a problem. You know, if you're trying to take these big home run swings on, uh, you know, risky type prospects uh, in those spots and you're doing it simultaneously, um, you know, that's your fault. That's not those players' fault for busting out. And it's certainly not the draft experts' fault for overrating them, um, you know, improperly. I agree. And taking two players who do not seemingly complement one another either as two potential building blocks also just doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And two bigs when you really need a point guard right. help and you're searching exactly. all over the place and there's Jamal Murray sitting right there. I mean, come on. All right. Uh, we got an email from Jake. And it was subject line, Timberwolves mistakes. And it was uh, the uh, salutation <laughs> line was where to begin. And he lists them off. I'll go quickly. Draft pick after draft pick. Shabazz Muhammad in 2013. Derek Williams, number two in 2011. With Kemba, Clay, Kawhi, Butler, the Morris Twins, and even Tristan Thompson going after him. Wesley Johnson in 2010 at four overall. Um, with DeMarcus Cousins, Paul George, Hayward, Avery Bradley, Eric Bledsoe after that, to name a few. Chris Dunn was a suspect pick to him. The Nikola Pekovic contract, that was an albatross, he said, if there ever was one. Trading Zach Levine rather than Wiggins in the Jimmy Butler deal. Uh, Trading for Jimmy Butler at all. 
uh, trading Brandon Roy Boo. for Randy Foy, <laughs> uh, signing Tom Thibodeau, and he says, look, it's hard to be a diehard Timberwolves fan, not only because they continue to lose, but because they have made such atrocious decisions all along the way. Michael, I mean, are you going to feel some sympathy here for him? Are you going to try to you know, pat him on the back and say it's actually not that bad? I mean, which way are you going on this one? It's been a rough, I don't even know, 30 years for the Minnesota say, Timberwolves? I would just say existence, you know? Yeah. I mean, there's there's been a few moments here and there, but it's been a rough existence. Yeah, and so this technically did not happen before uh, the decision, or I should say after the decision, but it doesn't even account for what, in my opinion, is the worst move that the Timberwolves have ever made, which is in 2000 when they tried to circumvent the salary cap by promising Joe Smith a big money payday if he agreed to take three consecutive one-year deals at a below market value um, so that they could then uh, obviously have cap space and spend it elsewhere and kind of have their cake and eat it too, which is illegal. And so when David Stern and the NBA eventually found out, they stripped the Timberwolves of first round picks in 2000, 2001, 2002, 2004. And meanwhile, usually when you're losing that many first round picks, it means you've just traded for Paul George, right? So uh, (laughs) to to lose all those picks and not have the superstar coming in, I mean, that does set you back for a decade. I mean, I'm sure that particular one, what do you think the the length of impact on that particular mistake was like 15 years. Like it, you know, how long well, did it take them to dig out of that? Yeah. I mean, immediately what you have is you have Kevin Garnett on your team, first of all. So you're trying to build around him. You're trying to uh, promote a culture that would want him to stay and cultivate some sort of environment that is conducive to long-term sustainability. And this just kills that. You can't do that without draft picks as we know. Um, and the CBA was different then, but draft first round picks are, are first round picks. They're they're critical, and so if you don't have access to them and you're a small market, you're screwed. And so Kevin Garnett eventually gets traded because he's so frustrated with perpetual losing, and that, as you said, it probably liter- literally set them back like 15 years. Like it's it, it's. It's such a bad <laughs> move. Like I, we talk about bad decisions. That is an all just all time travesty. No, I mean it was so bad they had to enforce the rules that they never really want to enforce. Right. Right. They, it was one of those situations where it's like you know you go to the principal's office and like you know he he wants to give you the benefit of the doubt. He doesn't want to put something on your record forever because he knows the college admissions boards are gonna. Um, you know, look at it, but like, ultimately you drain the school pool and you flooded a classroom. Like, what do you want me to do? Like, that's not allowed. Like you've caused thousands of dollars worth of damage here. Like you really are going to have to pay a price here. Um, I don't know other high school pranks. I think one time somebody somehow got a broken down car up on top of the school's roof. I don't remember exactly how that played out. Um, there was a few of those along the way in, in good old Beaverton that, uh, you know, required some serious, uh, you know, authority intervention, uh, a la David Stern in Minnesota. But yeah, man, like it was just too blatant, too, too rough, and it, it really did set them back. When you first started, though, with the worst decision of all time, Michael, I thought you were going to Johnny Flynn, man. I mean, that one, mm. I think that one's got a lot of attention because of, you know, where Steph Curry went. But Rubio and Flynn, again, you know, similar to the Sun <laughs> situation, there's not really any way to play them together. Um, they're 
different players so you could argue they're complementary but like ultimately they're both going to have to be your point guard right you know you, you rubio off the ball works as a defender but not as a shooter no. um, and then flynn uh, the health stuff definitely made his career worse but uh, you know it was a real questionable evaluation there um and then both of them, the combined uh, impact of both of them before Curry is pretty rough. I mean, we also should just mention as a postscript, and we might have done this in the last episode, I mean, drafting a player who's 26 years old and not eligible should be viewed as one of the worst decisions of all time, right? Because that's like not even going to Wikipedia. Um, <laughs> that that like that, That's just a bare bones incompetence from that franchise, and they did that. Uh, with a second round pick and i actually remember calling the league office as a blogger when i was at blazer's edge after that pick to try to get guidance on like how that was going to play out and i just remember them being so confused and just like well look like we've (laughs) never had anyone do this before like we don't really know how it's gonna play out this is like the 57th pick or whatever of the draft we're working through it and uh, it was just one of those moments where you're just like wow uh, you know, this is an $8 billion organization or whatever. And yet they're just humans like all the rest of us. You know, they're just trying to kind of make it up as they go along. All right. A couple more really quick ones here at the end. Matteo writes, I'm a longtime Italian fan of open floor. And what you guys said about Andrea Bargnani last episode really hit close to home. And Michael, I was worried when I read this email in the subject line that we were going to get a big pushback from the Italian basketball community saying, don't insult our hero. You know, he's one of the most famous Italian players of all time. Instead, Matteo writes, it hit me close to home, not because it was wrong, but because it brought back bad memories. I'm from Treviso, which until the team was closed down in 2011, was, was arguably one of the basketball meccas in Europe. Bargnani came out of there and impressed everyone with his game, I was a teenager and seeing a player from my country and team make it as the number one draft pick in the NBA and going to the team that I cheered for, the Raptors, was such an honor. But the way it turned out leaves me with nothing but what ifs. To see where he is now with all that talent is painful. He's a celebrity mental coach or something like that. Honestly, he sells himself now as a bit of an Instagram D-bag personality. Do you guys think the NBA and its pressure destroyed Bargnani psychologically, or do you just think he was overrated all along? So what do you think, Michael? Uh, how do you explain Bargnani's career arc? I mean, I just think he was uh, should not have been the first overall pick, and there are expectations that come when you're selected first overall, and some players just never live up to them, and I think there is some psychological baggage that comes with that and some pressure but at the end of the day like i think i said in this in a previous episode when we were discussing this but like if you just talk to people who were close to him coaches around the league who had to deal with them he wasn't like uh extremely self-aware or uh like he wasn't in the gym before everybody and staying after everybody left that just wasn't who he was so the results kind of speak for themselves and are expected based on how he behaved when he was in the league yeah so much of it i think for the the transition for foreign players does wind up coming down to like commitment and pure love for the game i think in part because the nba schedule is so freaking long and the country is so big that the travel is a real real part of the deal right it's a full-time life commitment to do this 
And, you know, sometimes you'll see guys go back to play overseas after trying, you know, trying it out in the NBA and thinking it's just not for them. I don't think that makes them weak necessarily, but I just think it's a different quality of life if you're playing half as many games and not needing to travel uh, quite as extensively. It's just, are you all in or are you not? Uh, by all accounts, Bargnani just kind of wasn't there. Um, and I also think that not all number one picks are created equally, but they all get that number one pick label, right? So there's weaker classes where, Anthony Bennett can wind up going number one. Bargnani can wind up going number one. And that does put a label on you. And you're going to be compared to guys like, you know, LeBron and a Dwight Howard and, a, you know, and other players who are obviously future Hall of Famers in that number one spot. And, you know, nobody would have called Bargnani a once in a generation prospect when he's coming through, right? Like that just really mm-hmm. wasn't how he was viewed. So, I think it's a little bit on the perception side. I think it's also he bears most of the responsibility. I actually thought he was given every opportunity in the NBA to kind of do it. Uh, you know, the Raptors, you know, he was the number one scoring option for them for a while there um, and, and certainly averaging 20 plus points at various points. I, I think that it's kind of a sink or swim league. He just w- really wasn't uh, wasn't up to it. All right, uh, closing out here, Bruce wanted to make a quick note. One of the worst decisions from a player perspective of the last decade was Nerlens Noel declining a $70 million contract before the world realized that he can't shoot or do anything that a modern NBA big man needs, and thus he became a minimum player. Michael, that's a oversight on our ha- behalf for sure, right? I mean, that's way, way up there as like the wish you could redo, uh, you know, the erase button um, of NBA life. 100%. And it actually made me think of all the players who were free agents in 2015 who signed long-term contracts that prevented them from re-entering the marketplace in 2016 when there was this humongous financial windfall. Uh, it just it, it sucks for those guys, and some of them did not, I guess, have the best advice from their representation on what to do and same goes here for Nerlens Noel and I, I think it's really easy to sell someone on you know bet on yourself and you'll be able to make more money down the line that obviously did not work for Nerlens and it's a bummer and I mean he's still like I I like Nerlens Noel's game he just has never lived up to what a lot of people thought he would be when he was at Kentucky I think. Yeah, for sure. I mean, he was, uh, you know, the injury issues kind of almost added to the intrigue for him coming out of like, oh, Mm -hmm. this could be this guy who's going to be a big impact maker once he's back healthy. And it just never really materialized. I mean, he's a a useful rotation player, but, you know, not much past that. Um, I'm glad you mentioned the whole bet on yourself thing. I remember, was Jimmy Butler the one who coined that, that, uh, that phrasing or kind of popularized it in terms of, you know, waiting for the bigger offer? Um, I think Jimmy Butler would be happy to take credit for, for coining that if you want to give it to him. Uh, yeah, I, for some reason, I feel like he was the first one who I really remember using that particular phrase in that contract situation. And a bunch of guys did it all around the same time, in part because the NBA's economics were rising so uh, quickly that they were getting mm-hmm. advice from agents. Hey, you know, wait, it's going to be a greener pasture down the road. Uh, for a lot of those players, it paid off. It paid off for Jimmy. It paid off for others. For Nerlens, it just completely blew up in his face. Uh, the only other situation I could really remember where a guy lost more money than that was DeMarcus Cousins getting injured when he did, you know, passing on, uh, you know, a pretty sizable contract there in New Orleans uh, to kind of bet on himself and then have it, you know, all disappear. And, and now he's kind of fighting around for minimum mm-hmm. contracts and so forth. I mean, there's... 
you know, you hate to dwell on these because you realize that somebody's life and their entire family's life has changed drastically because of that that particular decision. And that's why, you know, you need good advice uh, and you need trusted agents if you're in these situations. All right, last one, and it's a real quick note from Ian in Pittsburgh. Michael, do you remember a couple of weeks ago, we had our listener Joel write in to say that he was intimidated by a deer in his front yard when he was trying to shoot free throws. And we were giving him different, uh, you know, mental exercises to build his confidence. I think I suggested that he put up a fat head of deers to kind of, you know, uh, psych himself up a little bit and, and get mm-hmm. used to practicing with, uh, you know, with observers so that he could improve his free throw shooting. Ian from Pittsburgh suggests before we get too far away from Joel's deer story while we're shooting, while he was shooting free throws, doesn't his new fathead cardboard cutout have to be named Dante Deer Vincenzo? Uh, I think that's perfect, Ian. I love it, Michael. It made me laugh out loud, almost snort water out of my nose. I'm not ashamed to admit it. What do you think? I want to hire Ian to be my writer for this podcast when I need a whippy line, <laughs> okay. or a, a quick comeback for you to, to retort a, a point that you've made. Ian, just send send the one-liners to me. Yeah, Ian, he wants just 20 pro-Celtics comebacks because that's all I ever dish his way, <laughs> the anti-Celtic stuff, and you're going to help him build up his reservoir of uh, responses. No, I love that. Um, I don't know, Michael, do we solicit more dear fathead puns from the Open Floor Globe? That sounds dangerous, but maybe they can email us, openfloormail at gmail.com, openfloormail at gmail.com. And guys, I want to encourage you, we tried to answer or at least give a little bit of a preview for what this bubble could be like. As I mentioned, I'll be going down there on Saturday, so the next podcast Michael and I will tape will be from inside the bubble. If you have any questions about that experience, just anything that you're curious about, I'm going to do my best to answer those. I'm going to try to be as transparent as possible. So please email them in openfloormail at gmail.com. Until then, be sure to go to uh, our Apple podcast page by searching for open floor. That's two words. When you get there, scroll down. It will say rate and review. Tap five stars. It's just that easy to help us spread the word. I know you've got basketball fans out there that are starting to get itchy in your lives, you know, knowing that the games are right around the corner. So help them, uh, you know, turn them on to us. We'd be very appreciative. Now, Michael is on Instagram and Twitter at Michael Villas and Victor Pina. I'm on Instagram at Ben.Golver, on Twitter at Ben.Golver. You guys can check me out at thewashingtonpost.com slash sports and be sure to sign up for my newsletter. The link is at the top of my Twitter page. All right, Michael, that was about 16 minutes worth of plugs, but we got through it. Hey, until next week, I will talk to you. Talk soon, Ben.